0: Final episode for Series 1 of the Eddie Jones Coaching Podcast, where this week we're talking about a coach's journey.
1: Working out how to get that group of kids who didn't particularly want to do maths, get them to work together, get them to learn. And when I look back, that was the best coaching coaching apprenticeship I had.
0: More of that, plus favourite sporting moments, when to cut a player and the last dance. Let's get into it. Morning, Eddie. How are you, mate? All right? All right. Yeah, I'm going to ask you a movie question.
1: <laughs> it's not my,
0: fav- my favourite movie, but uh, I quite like Sliding Doors for a reason. I'll tell you in a second. What, what's your favourite movie?
1: It's a good question. Uh, I used to love Raging Bull, mate. Uh, ah. I used to love – I love boxing movies.
0: Well, actually, I, I do like boxing movies. And Sliding Doors sounds like a bit of a romantic one that, that I like. But reason, reason <laughs> it just comes to mind is um, – I think every, every person there in their lives has a sliding doors moment. The door opens, the door closes, your life takes a different direction. And I look at that as well when you are involved in sport. You look at moments that change your career path. You know, for me, it might be uh, a referee not calling a holding penalty when I was over a ball and someone cleans me out and I break my leg and my career is done. But at an early age, you start into a different career path. Give me a couple of your, I I call them sliding door moments, as a coach within matches, matches you remember that if a bounce had gone one way or the other, that would have affected your lives. Are you any of those that you can think of that really stand out in your mind?
1: Uh, Well, One match comes clearly. I remember being involved with South Africa in the 2007 World Cup and we played Tonga. So they would won the first two games quite easily against uh, Samara in England and then played Tonga and it was the bottom half of the squad plate. Um, but on the bench were guys like Matt Field, both uh, free to pre, so it was a pretty celebrated bench. Good finishes. Anyways, good, finishes. Yeah, good, good finishes. Anyway, they uh, Tonga got off to a flyer um, and led um, and halfway... Well, probably about 10 minutes after halftime, Jake decided to put the whole bench on the field. So Matt Field, John Smith, they all go on. Anyway, claw the lead back. Um, get in front, 31-30, last play of the game. Tonga make a break. I can still see it now down the right-hand side. Chip over the top. No-one's there. Ball bounces in play. The Tongan player scores. The Tonga wins. Ball bounces out. South Africa go on to win the World Cup, and and people don't realise the margins are so small in in test match rugby, and that that's just one example.
0: Yeah, and, and I think people, don't people overreact to Whether it be that was that the first game against England, in that World Cup, thirty three nil or something, like that, that was the big easy win, yeah. and then you ended up playing in the final. But uh, the, even in those. Seemingly one sided matches, there are moments within a game that just change the game completely and entirely. And people overreact, don't they, at the end of games and think, oh, it's a 20 point win, the team was terrible. Actually, you can always pinpoint those one or two momentum shifters, can't you?
1: Yeah, from a coaching point of view, I think you've always got to be aware of the quality of your performance because sometimes you can perform quite well, but things just don't go your way, the ball bounces one way. Um and you know when you're having a good run the ball bounces your way. Yeah. It just does. when I mean, you're not having a good run, it always bounces the opposition's way. And you can't work out why you can't get that bounce of the ball. Um, but uh you've got to suck all of that up and, and just keep going, don't you, as a case. Uh,
0: have you I'd just like to spot have you any other moments that you can think of in those sliding doors that you think back on and go, gee, I was teetering on the brink of Losing my job, it could have changed what what way I've gone. Are there players that stand out that have helped you almost stood alongside with those times? There's a a really uh, Joe Smith when he started his time in Ireland was, you know, I think his first four or five games they they probably I think they lost. I can't remember for Leinster. This is for Leinster, and he was getting getting a big name. He'd come from as assistant coach from Claremont following Michael Chekka, yeah. uh, quite a bit of grief. But the players absolutely bought it. Despite the results, the big players went to him and went, wow, what we're doing here is right. People like Brian O'Driscoll, just go, this is the way. Do, do you have those sort of moments that you were going through, those tough times, the players were just going, no, hey, listen, I like what's going on here.
1: Yeah, no, definitely my first big professional coaching job with the Brumbies. Uh, they came second the previous year. I took over and, and managed to coach them to 10th. Um, well done. Well done. <laughs> really good performance. And then we started the next year and we lost the first three. Um, but we, we changed the way we played. So we went to um, very much a sequence type type game in those days, which was quite new. Um, And we lost the first three games and then we played the Bulls. And it was, I can still remember, there were 6,000 people at at the Old Bruce Stadium. So the crowd wasn't turning up. The weather was terrible. The Bulls had had been on quite a good roll. And just things, the best players, I remember Roth, Joe Roth, Gregan, played outstandingly well. We won 76 0 and we never turned back after that. You know, we went on, I think. To win something like eighty-three percent of our games in the next two and a half seasons after that, then you always need those good players to stand up for you.
0: Mm. And buy and buy into what you're doing. What what are your what are your skills from you know? And everyone says it is your ability to communicate and your background. And I remember with my with, with my mom and dad saying, pre-professional says you should. Qualify as a lawyer and qualify as an accountant and play rugby and then you'll have a really good career about everything. And I said, oh, great. But we, we did, I didn't, do, didn't do any of them. We, we, um, we came from a different background into coaching and there's loads of people that just are now growing up a bit like players. All they want to do is coach. What balance do you think, let's say, teaching, your teaching career has given you and your background in amateurism? And and what would you advise people get into coaching in terms of learning from other industries, not just staying in the coaching industry, getting a broader experience, or just go straight into coaching?
1: Yeah, no, I I would get as broad an experience as I could. um, Try different jobs. Learn as much as you can. Like, I was lucky to do school teaching. I think that gave me a head start in coaching. And and the best school teaching experience I had the first two years, I was trained as a PE teacher and you couldn't get a job in my area for 15 years. So you had to do something else. So I became a, I think they call them supply teachers in mathematics. And because I was a supply teacher, I used to get the classes The teachers would take days off when they had the worst classes, which was usually (laughs) the bottom of year, bottom of year nine, bottom of year 10 in maths, because they don't want to learn maths, those kids. And that was the best coaching experience I had, working out how to get that group of kids who didn't particularly want to do maths, uh, get them to work together, get them to learn. And when I look back, that was the best coaching, coaching apprenticeship I had. And I'd encourage anyone, any, particularly ex-players, we want to become coaches to think about the fact of of how can you do some other other occupations that'll help you in terms of assessing a group, getting a group to work together, and then being able to communicate to that group.
0: I, I have to say that so what I say about breaking breaking my leg and I tried to rehab for a year or two I had four operations on it, finally retired, and one of the best and worst things I ever did was being given an opportunity straight away by London Irish to go in as the director of rugby and to do it. And when I say the best and worst, they gave me so much support. It was an unbelievable leg up at the age of 30 into a career. But the worst was going straight in amongst a group of people that you knew intimately, that you'd shared beers with, you'd shared times with. They're kind of looking at you going, well, hold a second, you're a poacher turned gamekeeper here. So there's a balance of getting away. I think there's so many... People get into coaching and they don't want to travel and they don't want to have... I look at someone like Ronan O'Gara now. Grows up in Munster. What does he do? He leaves. He goes to Racing. He goes to the Crusaders. He's now back in his you know first head coach role at uh, La Rochelle. But he could easily have gone straight to Munster and just stayed nice and close. So broadening your experience is so important, isn't it?
1: Yeah, no, hundred uh, percent. And what you're saying is uh, very right. And I think also the ability to to understand there's definitely a different philosophy in rugby in the southern hemisphere and northern hemisphere uh, because of the conditions that we play under for no other reason. Um, so southern hemisphere is much more about ball usage. Um, you know, you you, you want to have the ball for longer periods of time. Whereas the Northern Hemisphere, you know, and I'm, I'm uh, generalising here, but Northern Hemisphere more is, is more about ball winning and territory. And I think the coaches who have done the best are the coaches who have brought, been brought up saying the Northern Hemisphere then gone to the Southern Hemisphere learn about it. Look at Graeme Henry and, and Steve Hance, you know, two of the best coaches we've seen. Uh, they cut their mustard at, 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 at Wales, you know, learn about the Northern Hemisphere game it was no coincidence that the All Blacks went from an 80% winning team to a 90% winning team with their influence because they they prioritised ball winning as an important part of Test Rugby. And so the All Blacks became such a hard team to beat.
0: But do you think that was a strategic decision, uh, not just culturally for the Kiwi coaches that wanted to learn or the Southern Hemisphere coaches? That was a decision the New Zealand Rugby Union potentially took you saw so many coaches coming up. You look at Mitch. Mitch went to Limerick and was a star in Gary Own and then did his coaching in Sale, and and then goes back to New Zealand. And they just they got the balance then, didn't they, of of getting out, learning what the hard nosed forward play. I'm not saying that it's just the difference in the two cultures, isn't it? But yeah, then they're yeah. actually buy into both cultures.
1: Yeah. No, I think. I think New Zealand actively encouraged it, and I think they still do. You know, there's a the rumour that at the end of the rugby season, all the New Zealand coaches get together in some form, might be the, the biggest Zoom you've ever seen, and, and share all the information that they're picking up in various countries. And, and I think they probably do it in an informal way, but it, it, it makes sure that New Zealand stays abreast of everything that's going on in the world. And, and as a coach, that's one of your major responsibilities is to stay abreast of rugby development because rugby develops in different ways in different countries and and there's things to learn all the time.
0: Yeah, but but I know that I was contacted the other day by um, a basketball uh, coach and he was just talking, wanted to learn about different things, setting up a performance environment and I won't, I won't go to who he, who he is at the moment. Uh, but I mentioned you and I said, you know, at some stage that if you want to go in and you wanted to watch a session and observe England in action, you actively encourage that. It's actually, there's no secret. And the the all black coaches are brilliant. I talked earlier in this series about Wayne. They're amazing at sharing. It's actually, it's like a a good cook. They'll give you some of the bits and pieces of the recipe, but you still have to make the cake. And uh, it's, it's not, it's not rocket science, our sport, but actually sharing is a great thing to be able to do.
1: Yeah, I think someone alluded this morning, I was t- talking to a New Zealand uh, sports site this morning, actually, a uh, great guy, and he was talking about a book written by Adam Grant called Give and Take, and he was saying that yeah, generally the best coaches are the givers, the agreeable givers, um, because they're happy to give their own information out because they know they've got to then keep moving forward. And I think... The more the more you you try to take on that, I can keep learning, and I'm happy to share what I've got now because I've got to keep learning. And and by the time you've looked at it, I'm moving on to something else. Is is the right sort of attitude? Yeah,
0: certainly. The I, I tried to copy a, a Dover Soul from my wife to, uh, the other night from a cookbook <laughs> and it, it it didn't come out the right way. but I tried. Um, because you go and look, this is for you, like you. You go to all industry to learn. What draws you to a particular industry then? Like, what, why do you search certain things? Is it researched? Is it ad hoc? What, how do you pick and choose where you go to?
1: I generally have a plan. Um, so at the moment, we're working really hard on two particular aspects of our game. Firstly, the, the game itself. So we, we're delving deep into our game to see where we can improve our game. So we're talking to different coaches about around the world about different aspects of the game. Is there, see if there's anything to learn. And the second thing is, then really targeting communication, because at the end of the day, that's that's one of the coaches' main jobs is to communicate. So we're looking to see how we can communicate better. How can we can relate to to our, our own coaches and then to the players better? And and we're we're looking around the world to see who's who's doing it well and and what we can learn.
0: I'm sure you think back to your teaching days as well when you you think of how you communicate with players now compared to how you communicated even five years ago. Um, The the one-size-fits-all communication just does not work. You, you You look down on players and you understand their learning preferences and people think it's too much detail to go into, but some people just will be in your in your room, looking at the stats, looking at the videos, going, just please get me out in the pitch and show me. I do not want to, I cannot learn this way. But the old days it was, this is the way it is, learn it and get out.
1: Yeah, no, no, no. You used to take it for granted that they learned. Um, and we didn't really know. And now I think it's the responsibility to make sure that you've got that variety of, of learning and again you know talking to this New Zealand site this morning he was saying he works now for Toronto Blue Jays and they've got a, a director of learning in their club uh, someone whose full-time job is is to make sure that they create the best learning environment for the baseball team so it's yeah you know, it's it, it is definitely one of the key aspects of being a good coach at the moment.
0: Can you point to a player then, and you don't not names, but just kind of examples of someone you learnt late about how they learn? So we talk a lot about the new generation of player and the type of um, concentration level they have, how they learn, all their IT skills more more so now post pandemic. But can you think of, so we have to be able to address them and grow with them. But what about newer coaching career players that you've only understood maybe too late or you've understood very quickly that, wow, I have to just deal in their learning in a completely different way. Anyone stand out on that?
1: Yeah, I remember George Smith. uh, You know, I brought him in as a young guy he was 18, 19 years old and I was always pretty hard on him. And then I remember about two years ago, he was playing for Suntory and I happened to be at the game and he was playing terrible, mate. He was the worst player on the field. I remember I went in at halftime and normally I would have been quite hard and direct on him. And I said, uh, and I just said to him, I said, why do you think you're being so easy to tackle? And then the second half, he just changed the way he attacked and, and became the winning margin for, for his team. And I think that shows how you've got to evolve your coaching. That, um, you know, we used to think we used to have to tell the players everything and now, you know, one of the most important strings you've got and one of the most important tools you've got is, is good questioning. It's not the only tool, but it's one of the most important tools you've got. And probably for young players today, it is probably the tool you've got to be, you've got to be good at. But you've also got to know that sometimes they've got to be told. Because you can't be asking a question to someone if if they don't have the body of knowledge to answer it. So it's it's that balance. And, and, that, and I think that's one of the hardest things for coaches to get right is that balancing between asking good questions and telling because you've got to do both. And...
0: Plenty of experiences of asking the question and people dream up answers as opposed to giving fact. So if you if you leave it too loose, they start looking at things that just do not exist at all. Dream up grievances, dream up problems that just don't exist. Uh, And you you you're living the moment. You can it go, goes back to that performance versus results. You could have a miles better performance and get a win, or get a loss. And people will start picking you apart. You can have a terrible performance and win, and everyone goes, Oh, that was pretty good. Well, yeah. no. Um, who keeps, I've asked you this before, but I, just reading a couple of things this week and seeing, I saw a picture of Neil Craig as an example, especially in the role that you have and have had now for the last, God knows, 20 years, those confidence friends uh people who challenge you, uh, you know, ha- how important are they to you how do you identify them is it through you just come across them and go oh, we we click uh, you know how important is that for you
1: uh it's massively important for any coach to have someone who will always be absolutely honest with them i think that's the thing it doesn't matter what position you're in they'll tell you the truth and they they're, they're not worried about their own position. All they're worried about is giving you clear information. And that's where Neil's brilliant for, for, for myself and for the team um, in that he's, he knows about high performance, knows nothing about rugby. But he's, he's great in being able to assess the environment and assess the level of the relationship and, and, and how you've got to move it forward or how you've got to pull back. He's really good at that, and again, New Zealand have had that Gilbert Anoka, who's been yeah. there, you know, since uh, early '90s, and he's just a, a wisdom, a, a guy full of wisdom. Uh, Someone guy was telling me about, yeah, uh, you know, that uh, last dance at Steve Kerr, the, the Chicago Bulls. He, where does he coach now? Oh,
0: I don't know. I'm actually watching this here. I'm, I'm on episode four, so I don't know. I don't All know right, how much I got into him. Behind.
1: So yeah. anyway, he's got he's got another guy with him called Ron Addison, who's seventy two, who's basically same thing. sits next to him on the bench, you know is that is that wise guy who, who tells him they go a bit harder, and no, they pull back now, get the right balance in what you are doing. to have someone there is is massive, mate.
0: But but it's interesting. Like i on, I think it's episode four when the kids allow me allow me watch it. Um, <laughs> is that he that. He was almost sidelined by the Bulls and got rid of. It was only it was only by accident rather than almost, by, by design that he was kept on. Someone saw him and uh, and and put him in that position as that uh, not just mentor but just the the safe brain, the safe pair of hands. So he wouldn't have had the charisma to be able to carry on that head coaching role, but was the brains behind all the major decisions that have been made.
1: Yeah, yeah, no, you know that balance you get it, and being able to share responsibility as a head coach is something that, that uh, I think is so important. You know, if you, people talk about Alex Ferguson, what a great coach he was, and there's no doubt he had great success in twenty six years. But you think about the job that he started with and the job that he finished with. So when he first started, he maybe would have had twenty players to look after, maybe four staff. Um And that was it. When he finished, he probably had had to keep eyes on at least sixty, seventy players, at least, and probably had staff of twenty five. And so, the magnitude of the head coach's job over the last twenty five years has got massively bigger. So, the need for someone else to help you is is important. But uh,
0: God, you just jogged my memory on something here in terms of when you mentioned Alex Ferguson, and you think of his lieutenants. So you're talking about the Chicago Bulls and that you know trusted advisor. You think of uh, Brian Kidd, Steve McLaren, Carlos Kira's, if I get the pronunciation right, uh, both with assistants and with unbelievable players, he knew when to cut the umbilical cord. And even though he was the main man the whole time, there was this constant change Behind him to to reinvent the playing, and and uh, you know I've seen you know close people from me, people like uh, Chris Robshaw who served you unbelievably in those first few years. Incredible. You think of the chase down in Australia after remember the ball that comes yeah, off the post and yeah, the one man yeah, that's chasing yeah. is rubber But there comes a time, and I know he got his injury, and and, and hopefully he's uh, he'll get a, a, a swan song with Quinns before he he moves on, but. There's a time that you move on and it's that that edge. And Alex Ferguson had that, both coaching and playing. So move away from the players, have, evolving the coaching team and changing that. How do you go about that? When do you know the time to change?
1: Well, you never really know, but you've got to make an estimation. And again, when I was a young coach, uh, second year I coached, I went and saw Wayne Bennett who coached uh, the English rugby league team and he's coached for 25, 28 years in Australia at the, at the highest level. Uh, remember one of the things he said, he said, when you've got a good young player coming through and you've got an older guy who's who maybe has got one or two years or maybe three years left, to left, let the older guy go and bring the, bring the younger guy through one year too early. He said, because you'll get eight or nine years out of the young guy and the older guy will go off and play somewhere else. And it's so true. That's, you know, knowing that when the time is, is right to bring a younger guy through and regenerate your whole organisation. The same with coaching. You know, Alex, I think, had the knack of being able to rotate his assistant coaches. And sometimes because they were good coaches, they went anyway because they were Absolutely. off at other jobs. Yeah. So the rotation was done for him sometimes. But... He kept was able to keep things fresh and 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 uh, energetic for the players, and at the same time, you know, he's that hand of stability at the top.
0: Yeah, and no, I'm sure. Like, looking on a personal level, you look at someone like Steve, who you've had for so long. It's just a natural evolution for him. He yeah. has to do what he's done. So, like, even though you'd still like him beside you, most likely. Yeah. For him and, and for Leicester Tigers, it's a bloody good move. I mean, I'm sure if there's yeah. Leicester fans, if there's Leicester fans listening to this, they'll be very happy to have someone like him. And it's almost, it's now time for you to do your own thing and be a head man.
1: Yeah, no, hundred percent. Look, Steve did uh, two years in Japan and then and then four and a half years with England and and did an absolutely superb job for us. And it's time for him now to take his own job. And he'll go through his own apprenticeship now as as head coach, um, and he'll learn a lot uh, and he'll keep progressing. And one day, you know, well, there's no doubt I think he'll be good enough to coach England.
0: Yeah. Uh, enough rubbish questions from, uh, from me at the moment, I think. <laughs> um, Alan from Newcastle. I'm an inexperienced coach just starting coaching this season. What advice would you give me to help develop the players?
1: Well, Alan, every team you coach is the same you're going to have some experienced players, you're going to have some young players, you're going to have some middle-ranked players. And your job is to make sure for each player, you give them the best opportunity to be the best player they can be. And so the coaching of of rugby doesn't change from community team to the international team. You know, we're all in this together. But keep looking at each player individually, keep looking at at how you can improve them, what sort of relationship you have you have to have with that player what skill area you can improve and then and then make sure you give him time to to improve his skills.
0: Tommy from St. Helens, we're getting the northern questions today, which is good. Uh, what advice would you give uh, around looking for someone to support you in your coaching role? So the Neil Craig, that mentor type, how do you look for that? Uh, trial and error or actively search? What, what advice would you give on that?
1: So, Tommy, the first thing you've got to do is, is reflect on yourself. What are you good at doing? Um, what areas are you strong at? And then look for someone who complements you. So if you're, you're a strong technical or analytical coach, then you need someone to support you who's got more relationship-type skills. If you're the opposite, then, then you need a, a, a tactical, technical bloke. So look to see how you can get that complementary set of skills at the top of your club. And that'll give, that'll give the players the best opportunity to move forward.
0: Okay, last little question here. Claire from Bristol. How often would you talk with other coaches outside of your sport? Claire, i every day he talks, I reckon, every day. He's always <laughs> annoying them. Go on. How many times? Uh,
1: Claire, well, I've, I've spoken to the football coaches from Bristol. Uh, and uh, at least once a week, I try to talk to a coach from a from another sport. So last week I was lucky enough to have a really good chat with Justin Langer about how he developed the Australian cricket team. Um, and if you haven't watched that show, The, the Test, it's, it's worth watching because it's a great example of how you build or rebuild a team. Um, and he's a, Justin Langer is a knockabout guy, very good philosophy, good values. You just got to keep learning and, and look for people who are smarter than you. So again, in my case, it's not that hard.
0: Okay, last last little thing for me then is a little trivia question. Not a trivia question, an Eddie Jones insight. Not, it's, this is not allowed to be cricket and not allowed to be rugby. Give me <laughs> your – so people can look this up on YouTube. What is your favourite sporting moment outside of those two sports?
1: Goodness me. That's a, hard. On. Uh,
0: That's a good one, I knew it, outside cricket, it can't uh, be golfing. Uh, yeah. uh, well,
1: it's funny watching the last dance because – at that time when Chicago was having that run, I was in Japan and, and, and basketball is a really popular sport in Japan. So I, I ended up watching all of those finals. Um, and I can remember that Jordan three-pointer, you know, just his ability under pressure to, to do do the big play. And, and, and the interesting thing, again, watching that show is how many times he missed, but he still had the courage to have a go and that's the sign of a good sportsman.
0: And also, and thank you so much for this morning. The very first episode when they show him nail a two or three pointer to win in the last second for his college or university was the moment in his head he went on different. And I think everyone has that moment that they're able to say, "Hey, I can, I can step up to the next level." I think. It's a, it's a brilliant series. I know I'm only four into it, but hopefully the kids will end watch it over the bank holiday weekend. That'd be nice. That would be my goal well, for the you weekend. You enjoy it, mate. Thank you so much again. Listen, we'll talk to you. Can't wait to have you back over here. And uh, thank you very, very much for this morning.
1: Thanks, Connor. Good on you, mate.
0: And so that's it for Series 1 of the Eddie Jones Coaching Podcast. We hope you've enjoyed them as much as Eddie and I have enjoyed making them. We do have Series 2 in the pipeline, so make sure you're subscribed to get our latest episodes. Or if you are just joining us, We've got another five previous podcasts to get stuck into. Thanks for listening and we'll see you soon.